0: Have we got any Welsh people in the house? I'm not expecting many, but one or two, come on, hello. When I was a teenager, I spent a lot of time going back and forth traveling to Wales because my my grandma's Welsh, and I uh, ended up going across the bridge many a time, paying for the pleasure. And um, if you were ever to go to my grandma's house, there's one thing in particular I think you might notice quite quickly about her house. And that is that she had this giant painting of a pigeon on the wall. I'm talking massive. It filled up most of the the wall on the one side of the room. And if you're anything like me, that's strange. And you're probably wondering, why the heck does my grandma have a picture of basically a rat with wings that's dirty and gross on the wall? And like you, I was always wondering, why the heck is that there? And uh, one day, my curiosity got the better of me. So on the way home, when my mom was driving us back, I asked asked her, Mum, what's the fascination? Why does Grandma have this painting of a pigeon? And she turned to me and said something I wasn't expecting. She said, Your family have a long history of owning and racing home in pigeons. And I never knew this. I think pigeons are gross. And I couldn't believe that this was coming from my side of the family. And it it shocked me even more when my mum then went on to tell me, she loved raising these pigeons. Her granddad, who used to look after these athletes, um, would be very particular in how they were raised, so he wouldn't allow them to be hand-reared. But my mum loved the pigeons so much And what she would do is when my granddad was, uh, her granddad was out, she would take the pigeon feed, walk into the enclosure, and just let them swarm her. Gross, right? Uh, disgusting. And I never knew that my mum was the pigeon lady from Home Alone 2. (laughs) And um, she would like me to explicitly say to you that this is not a real picture of my mum. And jokes are always funnier when you have to explain them, aren't they? But I never knew this side of my mum at all. And um, I know it's true that she still has this love for pigeons because recently um, Hannah and I took her to Covent Garden and as we were wandering around, Hannah and I went and got some lunch. And in Covent Garden, they have all these signs that say explicitly, please do not feed the pigeons. And we come back around the corner, and there's my mum, sat next to a sign, feeding her sandwich to a pigeon. And it's gross, it's disgusting, and I, I never knew about this side of my mum. And no matter how long we've known someone, there is always something more to learn about them. The things they think and care about, they don't always come up in our immediate conversations. But over time, we can begin to uncover more about what gives people joy and what their motivations are. And whether you've known Jesus for a really long time or whether you don't know him at all, there is always something to learn. And the four Gospels give us a real insight into who he is. And therefore, they give us an insight to who God is because they're one and the same. In John 14, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me, seen the father and it's good to remind ourselves of who God is we so often have our preconceptions of what we think God should be like and we often forget to come back to the scripture and allow him to to say to us who he is think of one of those old watches that over time it it starts to slow down it stops telling the right time you've got to take it back to an old watchmaker to rewind it back so it starts telling the right time in the same way we have to keep returning to Scripture to be rerouted to retune ourselves to who he is. And so I want to share with you this morning a couple of my favorite stories from the Scriptures because I think they communicate a particular truth about who Jesus is. And that truth is this. Jesus wants a relationship with you. There is nothing we can do in this life that means Jesus loses the desire to have a relationship with us, his constant and his consistent longing is to be close to his people. It's for you and I to draw close to him. And I want to show you where we see that through these stories. Now, a bit of context for the stories: they are both from a similar time period. They're from first-century Jerusalem, They're, and um, Jesus, at this point, has been put on trial, arrested. He's died and he's risen again, but the disciples don't know it yet. They've heard rumors that he's been raised from the dead from some women who visited the tomb, but they haven't seen him for themselves yet at this point. They they're not quite sure. So, and that's where we're going to zoom in a little. So that brings us to our first story, which is commonly known as the, the road to Emmaus. You can find the story in Luke 24 if you want to read it later. There are two disciples heading along the road to a village Called Emmaus, which is about seven miles out west of Jerusalem. And these disciples have been following Jesus around for a few years at this point. But their world has been turned upside down because Jesus had died. They had thought that Jesus was the coming Messiah, they had thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel and free Jerusalem and enter as this triumphant king who would overthrow the Roman occupation. They had spent years following him around, listening to his teaching, watching him perform miracles. These disciples had placed all their hopes and their dreams on Jesus, but that dream died when he did. As far as they would have been concerned at this moment, the person they thought was going to save them couldn't even save himself. And as they're walking along the road, they're talking to one another, reflecting on all that's gone on. And naturally, they are disappointed. Of course, you would be. If your hopes and dreams have all been placed on one one person and suddenly they're they're gone, it's going to be earth-shattering for you. And it says that their faces were downcast. You can see it on them. And when you go through a tough time, places can hold painful memories. Um, How many of us would find it difficult to walk into a hospital because the emotional or physical pain it reminds us of? How many of us would find it hard to walk back into a school classroom where we've been bullied? Places can can hold those particular painful memories. And our natural response kicks in to tell us to get out of there, don't go back. When you feel the burn from a fire, your natural instinct is then not to go close again. And we don't know why they're walking away from Jerusalem, but we can probably bet that they, they have held some painful memories in that place. And like those 3D glasses you get at the cinema that turn a 2D image to 3D, disappointment is a lens that can change your view of what's going on. And we see that here with the disciples. As they're walking, a man approaches and begins to, to walk with them. Now, the reader, we know it's Jesus, but they don't know it yet. He asks what they're discussing, and they wonder what, who this guy is who's been living under a rock and hasn't heard about what happened to Jesus. In, and as they're telling the story of what was going on, they don't refer to him as the Messiah. They refer to him as a prophet. Their disappointment has struck them so hard that they've begun to question if Jesus was even who he said he was. It has distorted how they view him. If you ask me if Liverpool's the greatest football team in the world, I'm going to tell you yes. If you ask me the the day after they had just lost the Champions League final, I'm not going to say yes with the same conviction. Their disappointment has demoted him from being their saviour to just a wise and powerful teacher, a subtle yet powerful difference. And many of us in this room will know that feeling all too well, where we've been expecting God to do something and he hasn't. Lord, I thought you had a plan for my life, but it feels harder and messier than ever Lord, I'm desperate for this person to come to faith and come to know you. Don't you even care that they don't? Lord, I'm so disappointed that that relationship didn't work out, that that job, I didn't get it. Are you even who I thought you were? Can I trust you anymore? And I used to think that if I had these questions, they would somehow make me less desirable to Jesus. That if I was lacking in faith, lacking in trust for him, if I was struggling to understand what he was doing, he he wouldn't want me. Basically, I thought, in order for Jesus to continue to love me, that I had to have all my ducks in a row. I had to meet a certain expectation. If I read my Bible enough, if I was kind enough, if I was generous enough, that if I performed well enough, we'd be okay. And when I first read this story, I thought that Jesus would be hearing these disciples, and suddenly he would snap and say, okay, I'm done. You know, you've been with me for the last three years. You've listened to everything I've had to teach you. You've seen me perform miracles, turn water into wine, raise the dead. I've taught you everything I know and told you exactly what was going to happen, and yet you still do not see. Surely these guys aren't hitting the mark. So many of our human relationships are conditional. Even the best of friendships or romantic relationships are based on the idea that you would love one another well. So when one side starts dropping the ball, obviously there's only so long we will allow that to continue up to. And uh, James Barlow, who is part of the team here, is a great friend of mine. And I value him very much in my life. But if I never reached out and talked to James, if I uh, never got in contact, or even when I did get in contact, I spoke harshly about him, I was mean about him, I was brutal to him. Then how, of, of, then how long do you think it will be before James thinks I'm not a very good friend anymore? The answer is not very long because the condition is that we were loving each other at least a little bit well. But here's the thing. Jesus' love for us is not conditional. It is the core of who he is. God is love. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God And even if we do not fulfill our end, there is no condition that means Jesus is Jesus loses the desire to love us. His response to the disciples' disappointment, to them not understanding, is not to expel them, instead, he draws closer. As the story goes on, they continue down the road and Jesus corrects their thinking. He opens up the scriptures and explains to them what's going on. Didn't the Messiah have to go through these things? And when the disciples arrive at the village, they invite him around because it's getting late for, the, for dinner. And there's this moment where around the table, Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks, he breaks it and starts giving it out to them. And the scripture says this, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That very night, they run all the way back to Jerusalem. And it's hard enough to convince me to run anywhere, let alone to run all the way back to the place it's taken me so long to get from in that day. But something has changed within them, something that can't wait till morning. And this isn't just like a physical opening of the eyes. It's like the very window of their souls have been flung open wide. When they see him, their disappointment fades away because they realize he is actually who he said he is. What we thought about him actually was true. Think back to when some of you first became a Christian uh, for some of us, there may have been a moment or, uh, that changed how you felt about faith completely. A moment where you saw Jesus as God in your life, possibly for the first time. But everything you thought about God suddenly fades away because your eyes were opened for, for the first time. For me, it was at a youth camp where I met the Holy Spirit for the first time. And a couple of weeks ago, when the youth uh, just come back from DTI, they uh, shared a little bit at our 6.30 service. And one of the girls talked about having this fire in the belly after they came back from that camp. And for me, it, it was that similar fire when I came back. And it was in that moment I knew I, Jesus wasn't just this wise teacher. He was the living God he, who is alive and working today. He'd always been there. But in that moment, my eyes had been opened to see him more clearly. And Jesus' answer to the disciples' disappointment is not expulsion but revelation, to reveal who he is. He reminded them through the scriptures about what they said about him. When he broke the bread with them, it would have reminded them of the Last Supper where Jesus had broke bread, gave wine, telling them to do the same in remembrance of him. His desire was to show them the truth about who he is. And we see it again with another disciple called Thomas. Thomas, When a bunch of the disciples, they'd seen Jesus in a room and Thomas wasn't there. And he wouldn't believe their their accounts of what had happened. And he said, no, not until I see him myself, not until I can put my hands in his wounds, will I believe. And then later on in another room, Jesus appears and Thomas is there. And Jesus holds out his hands and says, touch them. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas' eyes are opened in that moment and he proclaims, Jesus as his God and his Lord. And in his kindness, and because he loves them, Jesus met with these people in the midst of their pain and their confusion. And the only reason Jesus would reveal himself to these people was because he wanted to. Why would he go through all the effort if he didn't? For those of us here today, We have things going on in our lives that have left us feeling confused. We may be feeling disappointed, angry, fearful because we don't know what the future holds. We may have our doubts, our questions, wondering if any of this is even real. And in a room like this one, we can begin to feel guilty and wondering if we're the only ones who think like this. And trust me, you're not. Every one of us will go through moments where... We we struggle with these things at some point. I've had my own questions to wrestle through. But the good news is that in the midst of it all, all that mess, all that hurt, all that confusion, Jesus walks alongside with us right in the midst of it, even if we don't realize he is there. And he wants to show you who he is. None of that mess can get in the way of him wanting to reveal himself to you. Our next story follows the disciple, uh, Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends. And I don't know if you've ever been in the room with two people who have recently broken up. That reuniting moment is always a little awkward. And uh, whenever that happens, I always find myself getting a little bit twitchy, a little bit nervous about wondering <laughs> where they are. And, uh, because these are um, highly emotionally charged moments, aren't they? And uh, I don't want to be around when the human grenade goes off in the room. And uh, I, I often describe these kind of moments as uh, the people who are afraid of cats. And when you go around a cat owner's house, you just see these people like looking around the room, just making sure, watching where's the cat going to be in case it's going to suddenly pounce on them. I'm like this in these random social situations where I'm looking around the room and be like, are they going to be near me when the argument happens? Can I get away from this? I feel the awkwardness. I feel the tension in the room. And when I read the story about Peter, I feel the same tension, that same awkwardness. The last time Peter had seen Jesus was the night he betrayed him, when he denied him. In the lead up to Jesus being arrested, which eventually leads him to the cross and being killed, Jesus predicts that Peter would deny him three times. And at the time, Peter is really offended and is like, no, no way. I will go with you to the very end. I will die for you if I have to. And when that moment comes, Jesus is arrested, and a servant girl comes up to Peter, and he says, and they say, weren't you one of the guys who has been hanging around with Jesus these last years? And he says, no, you've got the wrong guy. It's not me. He does it three times, and then when he realizes what he's done, he goes away devastated. This was their last interaction before Jesus died. And so you can understand, can't you, when you fast forward to this moment where they are reunited again, that there's going to be a little bit of awkwardness in the room. Surely Peter's in trouble for this one. Surely he's in for a telling off. You, you said you would die for me. Where were you? But Jesus, as always, knew better. He knew what Peter would do and responds in a far more kind of way than I ever would. And so we read this in John 21, when Peter and a bunch of the other disciples are out fishing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord, As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish and they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals. There with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Sometimes we act in ways that we know God won't like. We may deny him. We may deliberately disobey him, preferring our own way above his, we may allow the inner voice of selfishness, of fear, of temptation to speak louder than his truth in our lives. And I used to think when that happened that I needed to give God a bit of a cooling off period. That if I kept away for a while, keep my head down, sit at the back of church and keep myself to, to myself, eventually he would calm down and not be annoyed at me and we could go on and pretend like nothing ever happened. And I remember when I was working in a restaurant, um, if anything went on, And went wrong in that restaurant the head chef would absolutely lose it and to this day it's the most colorful language I've ever heard in my life and for some reason I always thought that God had a similar voice that he had this angry voice and that this is the voice he would use to me when I mess up and I think that's a common fear for many of us we're afraid of approaching him with our baggage because We're nervous we won't be accepted, we're nervous we could be rejected, and we're nervous that we could come away feeling worse than when we originally approached him. And what's better, the enemy you know, or the enemy you don't? But look at this story, look at how Peter responds to Jesus, and look at how Jesus responds to Peter. When Peter realizes that it's Jesus Jesus on the shore, he doesn't do what I would do, and bolt it in the other direction. He doesn't hide under the side of the boat saying, please don't see me. Instead, he dives into the water, goes full Michael Phelps, and swims as fast as he can to the shore. What type of person must Jesus have been for Peter to feel like that was the most appropriate response? Do you know what kind of safety you have to feel with someone if you know you've hurt them for your natural impulse to be to rush towards them. There is something at Jesus, at Peter's very core that knows that he is safe, that knows he is loved, and knows that he will be forgiven. It's not normal to willingly run to something you are afraid of. And if you want to know how to respond when we sin, when we mess up, do what Peter does here. And... Run towards Jesus, rush towards him. Run into his loving arms and look at how Jesus responds. In the moments we expect rejection, Jesus extends an invitation. When Peter arrives at the shore, Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And a couple of weeks ago, Johnny shared about what it means for us when we come to the table of the Lord. And one of the things he said about was, we receive grace. Now, meals in Jesus' day were important. They held a certain significance in Jewish culture. They were considered sacred moments. They were used as a way of remembering God's faithfulness to his people, his promises. They were uh, practically symbolic of community and friendships. You ate with close relatives and the people you wanted to honor. And that means who you ate with, who you invited to your table, who you spent your time with mattered. Now imagine if King Charles is hosting a ball of uh, 200 people and you happen to get on that list of 200 people. You would feel pretty important, wouldn't you? How much more important would you feel if you're the person chosen to sit next to him throughout the dinner? This is the kind of thinking in those days. When he invites them for food, he's not just saying, here, have a snack, be on your way, we're never going to speak again. He's bringing him close. He's reaffirming their relationship, drawing them back into the family. He's inviting them back into friendship with him. The people we share most of our meals with are normally the people we're closest to. It's an invitation of grace. Peter's denial has been covered. It was forgiven, and he's pulled in closer, back into intimacy with Jesus. And this is the same invitation that is extended to you and I today. Jesus' constant desire is to be close to us, to have intimacy with us. It does not matter who we are, what we've done, what we're carrying, we are still invited to come and have breakfast with him. We are invited to draw close to him. And there is a film that came out in 2016 called Silence uh, with uh, Andrew Garfield in it, it's, uh, it's very good. It's not for the faint-hearted. But it's, but it's um, based in feudal Japan in the 1600s, and it follows these two missionaries who are looking to help encourage the Christians in Japan as they go through brutal persecution. And um, there's a guy in this film, and I'm, I'm hoping not to butcher the name, but he's called Kichijiru. And the film really paints this guy to be this like wretched character. You're almost led to despise him. And we find out that as Kichijiru's family, uh, they've been tortured and burned alive. And at this moment, he stamps on an image of Jesus to deny his faith and basically save his own life. He later goes on to betray one of the priests, uh, getting him arrested and tortured by the Japanese. And even in the midst of all this, Kichijiru is kind of this unsung hero of the faith in this film. Even though this guy is constantly messing up and it's having devastating effects on the people around him, he keeps coming back to the priest to confess. He keeps coming back and asking for the Lord's forgiveness. Time and time again, he fails, but each time his response is to ask, to confess, and to be forgiven. Like Peter, he knows that if he wants to be free of all the baggage that he's carrying, he has to come close to Jesus, the one who died to save him from all of that. And if Peter's betrayal can be forgiven, then we too can have a genuine hope that whatever we have done can be too. There is nothing that can separate us through the love of God found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as I begin to finish, the question I often find myself asking at the end of this is how do I respond to all this? If Jesus wants to reveal himself to me and wants me to draw close, how does that happen? And there's an old hymn which has some helpful words that goes like this Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To put it simply, we must keep looking to him. We have to keep coming back to him to retune ourselves to remind ourselves of the kind of God he is. And we will find that as we, are, as we immerse ourselves in the scriptures, as we spend time with him, listening to his voice, he will reveal to us who he really is and remind us of what he sounds like. He will continue to invite us closer because he wants a relationship with you. His love for us is stronger than anything we can do against him. His desire for us never fails. And when we look to him, when we draw close to him, we will find that his goodness outshines our darkness. Amen.